0: Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, investor Stanley Fish will join us to discuss the first. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up here on the Grok's Science Show. Back to the Crossing Science Show. Well, the First Amendment and freedom of speech is often touted as a fundamental principle of American life, but is this really the case? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Stanley Fish. Professor Fish is the Davidson-Kahn Distinguished University Professor of Humanities and Law at Florida International University, and a visiting professor of law at Cardozo University. He's previously taught at UC Berkeley, Johns Hopkins, Duke, and the University of Illinois, Chicago, where he was the Dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. He's received many honors and awards, and have published an academic and popular works, appearing in The Chronicle of Higher Education, Harper's Magazine, Esquire, and The Atlantic. He has penned the new book, The First, How to Think About Hate Speech, Campus Speech, Religious Speech, Fake News, Post-Truth, and Donald Trump. And Professor Fish, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Well, this is certainly a fascinating book, certainly one that you have published extensively on, and one which I think will get to the root of First Amendment. I'm curious why you decided to put this particular book together.
1: Because I felt that in a number of areas associated with the First Amendment, there were myths accepted as truths or as, as commonplaces that needed to be examined. And those, this is what this book tries to do, beginning with the myth that there is something called the First Amendment or the principle of freedom of speech that you can point to and you can understand what it is, and it operates in a variety of situations. And so I go from there talking about why that's not so, and then in subsequent chapters on hate speech, religious speech, uh, campus speech, uh, I perform the same operation.
0: In all of those cases, there's a thread in modern discourse where freedom of speech is guaranteed, but it's not really guaranteed. It's more sort of a value.
1: It's Yes, it's not guaranteed. It's one of a number of possible values that might come into play uh, in a situation, and it will weigh differently in different situations. So it's not that fixed, abstract core of, of democracy that some take it to be.
0: book goes through it in a number of different contexts. The first one being censorship. Censoring is necessary.
1: Uh, Not only sometimes, but I think always. That is, if you think of censorship in a general way, that is the saying of things which implicitly denies the worth uh, of other things that would not be said, uh, then censorship is all around us. And in another sense, censorship is necessary for there to be something like free speech because there has to be a category of speech that no one wants to defend so that the category of free speech can be identified. If you could say anything about anyone uh, at any time, then what you wouldn't have a doctrine. Uh, you would just have a general license to produce noise. And that's not what the First Amendment is usually thought to be. So there
0: are limitations on what one can or cannot say.
1: Limitations come first and then Uh, the zone of free speech comes second. In the the usual story, there's this abstract thing called free speech, which is kind of the normal condition. And then there are exceptions to it, which have to be explained and defended. And I kind of turn that around. I'm saying, though, that the default or ordinary condition is constrained speech, speech in which it's quite clear that there are certain things uh, you are not able to say, and that the zone of absolute free speech is in fact very rarely encountered, perhaps on street corners or other places where you stand up and just say what you like because no one there cares about what you're saying and it's more a spectacle than anything else. So the ideal of free speech as the general condition of mankind, which is then spoiled by constraints, is something that I just turn on its head.
0: In its statement in the Constitution, it's really more the idea that the government is not in a place to limit your ability to speak.
1: Well, even that, of course, has its own limitations. The government can limit your ability to speak and does so in any number of situations uh, by so-called time, manner, place regulations where you can't take a loudspeaker into a residential neighborhood at 3 o'clock in the morning. If you're operating in a public hospital, wish to lobby for a salary raise while you're a nurse in the course of aiding and examine, an operation, you won't be allowed to do so. There are any number of instances. If you want to harass um, women who are approaching abortion clinics, you have to stay but depending on the law in the particular state, anywhere from 100 to 300 feet away from that person, you can't speak to them by megaphone, et cetera, et cetera. So the constraints are there, and uh, the government is continually uh, uh, imposing them.
0: American life, we don't focus on the constraints, but on this ideal of freedom that we are supposed to be endowed with.
1: Because the, what we, what's sometimes called American civic religion— Uh, the religion of of the liberal ethos, puts the individual and the individual's choice at the center. That is supposedly what is holy and sacrosanct. Your capacity and my capacity to choose the kind of lives uh, we like to live, and therefore, of course, to choose the kinds of things we would like to say. That has a huge appeal, and that is an appeal that has, uh, for example, uh, one illustration in the myth of the American West, uh, where the plain talking person is glorified, various forms of snake oil salesmen are vilified. So it's a very much a part of the way in which Americans like to think of themselves as free and as free speakers. Unfortunately, it's not true.
0: Of course, where this is held up as guiding principles of academia and the academy, of course, has oftentimes said that an area of freedom of speech reigns. But is this really the case?
1: Oh, no. Here, Here's my, I think, clearest example. I'll go so far as to say that freedom of speech has nothing to do with what goes on in universities, or as I put it in the title of that chapter. Freedom of speech is not an academic value. Freedom of inquiry is an academic value, but inquiry in the academy can only be undertaken by people who have the right advanced degrees, have, have passed the requisite tests, have been voted on by departments, and so forth. So, The business of the university is by and large deciding who shall not speak, from students who aren't allowed to challenge their instructor's choice of materials in the classroom to teachers who themselves must follow the dictates laid down by a department. So freedom of speech is not an academic value, and people who think that universities are in the free speech business have made a big mistake.
0: You, of course, taught at Berkeley, which is one of the bastions of this idea. They have that little zone of free speech there on
1: Sproul. I was there physically the night that the free speech movement exploded in Berkeley.
0: But is it really the freedom of speech, or as you put it in the book, freedom of inquiry?
1: It's really freedom of inquiry. And again, that's a freedom which is hedged around uh, by all kinds of rules. In order to engage in the inquiry, you have to be a certain kind of person uh, with certain kinds of credentials and then the disciplines always lay down rules about what can and cannot be said, what views uh, will be explored, and what views will be rejected. If you invoke freedom of speech, for example, if you're a student in a class and you don't want to discuss what the instructor put on the table today but want to discuss something else, and then you say, yes, I have freedom of speech, your instructor will say, or should say, that's very nice, but this is my classroom, and this is the course of instruction we're going to explore today. Uh, Of course, the relationship between universities and public, public relations and public support for universities is a very vexed one. But if university instructors took my advice and stuck to their subject matter, they then would be not would not be producing statements that members of the public could be, could be alarmed at. And there wouldn't be some of the pressures that uh, emanate from state legislatures to penalize uh, universities. If you teach the materials, think of yourself as someone who's introducing students to areas of knowledge they were unfamiliar with before. If you teach the materials and only do that, a task that's difficult enough, then nothing that you say will ever produce public anger.
0: The next chapter, which discusses the conflict that's religion and free speech.
1: Well, what has to be treated differently is religion. The liberal state, which is dedicated to treating all forms of talk uh, or discourse equally, is very much embarrassed by the example of religion, because religious people don't share that kind of ecumenical Tolerance. Religions don't cast a generous, tolerant eye on opposing religions or on non religions. They just label non religions or opposing religions as false and even evil. So, what does a liberal state do uh, with a form of thinking and talk, that is religion, that refuses to respect the liberal state's emphasis on tolerance? There's no easy answer to this question, which is why you have a continual give and take back and forth between the tendency to allow religions the freedom of exercise, as the Constitution says, um, and the concern that the state has that some of the exercise performed by religious people is harmful to others. There's no way out of this impasse, and it just keeps on taking new forms
0: so in all these cases, it winds up being a little bit of a balancing act, and there's no guiding principle that you decide all these different cases.
1: You've got that exactly right. The principle that might guide someone through the thickets or complexities, political situations aren't available. And that means that you have to do something like balancing or uh, some other kind of political strategy, because in the end, pardon the metaphors, there is no bottom line which you can cite you can only go forward on the basis of what you think would be the best thing to do and defend what you think with whatever reasons and resources come to hand another way to put this in perhaps a clearer way is that we're always all muddling through rather than being guided by principle
0: interesting state of affairs to be
1: in yeah it's the human state of affairs.
0: What about fake news, an explosion of speech, which is unbridled?
1: It's not so much if we've had an explosion of, you know, fake news or deceptive or exaggerated or mendacious news. It's that we've lost our faith, that is, the culture's faith, in the institutions that usually allowed us to distinguish between what is reliable and what is not. Uh, I'm old enough to remember the CBS news anchor Walter Cronkite who was called the most trusted person in America. And he ended each of his radio and TV shows by saying, and that's the way it is. And people believed him. Not that they believed that he got it right every time because what human could ever do that, but they believed that he was trying to get it right. And uh, the same people also believe that universities were trying to get it right and that scientists were trying to get it right. And that journalists, we're trying to get it right, and that professional organizations were trying to get it right. Because confidence in all of those organizations and associations has been eroded, it becomes more and more difficult to distinguish speech that is worthy of being heard and speech that is either nonsense or just a pack of lies. We must, and I don't know exactly how it should be done, but we must recover. confidence and faith in institutions that have been proving their worth and reliability for centuries.
0: Some final words regarding your book and how to think about the idea of free speech and the First Amendment.
1: Well, the only thing that I would say about the book is that the subtitle is how to think about, not what to think about. And that's important. I didn't write this book to answer questions like, what is hate speech? How do you identify it? And what do you do about it? I wrote the book to explore the complexity of the situations in which issues like hate speech arise. So if you want to know just what's going on in all these debates, as opposed to just wanting a simple direction and absolute rule as to what you should do, then you should read this book. If on the other hand, what you want is advice that you could carry around in your pocket and then pull out. When you run into one of these situations, then perhaps you might be better off reading someone else.
0: We're just talking with Professor Stanley Fish. The new book is entitled The First, How to Think About Hate Speech, Campus Speech, Religious Speech, Fake News, Post-Truth, and Donald Trump. And Professor Fish, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
1: Thank you for having me.